0: Good morning, I'm Father Spencer, I am one of the co-rectors here at the table, and this is really loud, Sorry. it's alright, just freaking me out, it's okay, um, it's so great to be with you all this morning. Today we proclaim the good news that Jesus is turning the tables of power and is showing us what tables are really for. In place of hospitality games and power posturing, he is showing us that everyone has a seat at the table. Lay down your assumptions today and come to the table as you are and receive peace. In our gospel passage in Luke today, we start out with Jesus holding court and talking to Pharisees who are taking issue with the way that he's going about his way in the world. They took issue with the way that John was making his way in the world too, who he, ate, who he ate with, how he ate or didn't eat, and now they're taking issue with the way that Jesus is doing it. There's a lot of nuance going on here in both of these cases, but suffice it to say, they are unhappy with the way that both John and Jesus were doing it. You're not doing it like us. This is not the way that we're allowed to disagree. You're going too far. Then the passage goes on to say that Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus over for a dinner at his house. This is more than just a simple shared meal. It has implications that extend out beyond just that table that they'll be gathered around itself and out into the community. Simon is in a position of power and influence, and he's inviting Jesus, an up-and-coming rabbi who's building a following, over to his table to host him. People in the community would have known about this. This would have been A public affair, in a way. It had implications for the community. There's political, there's religious, and there's power all on the table here. This is a meeting of the minds. Two political players are meeting. This is the room where it happens. The woman that we hear of in this story is not invited. She's a known sinner. Many scholars believe that the way that she's described in this passage communicates that she was actually a sex worker in that town. So, everyone that was there at this table would have known about her reputation. It preceded her to the table. We're told that she hears that Jesus is dining at Simon's house. So, she shows up at this important place, at this meeting of the minds. She brings with her an alabaster jar of ointment and begins weeping, and begins washing Jesus' feet with her tears, drying his feet with her hair, and then anointing his feet with this expensive oil she's brought. This woman takes an audacious gamble. She's not invited. She doesn't belong here. She's a known sinner, a sex worker. So her presence amongst these mucky mucks is unthinkable. But it doesn't just stop there. There's way more going on here culturally. In the Bible, we talked about this in our class this morning, but in the Bible, oftentimes when feet are mentioned, it's as a euphemism for something other than feet. So, In the Old Testament, Saul goes into a cave to cover his feet, which we assume means to relieve himself. Or Ruth uncovers Boaz's feet so that they can lie together. So there's a euphemism here that is in our most intimate places, our private places. It's not just feet. Even beyond that, this woman begins drying Jesus' feet with her hair. Culturally, it would have been thought of as immodest for her to have her hair down even, let alone be touching a man's feet with her hair. For those of you that are familiar with purity culture, this would have been similar to maybe wearing spaghetti straps, or maybe much worse than that. (laughs) Now, I want to be clear, I don't know what all this means, and I'm not saying that Jesus was uncovering his feet at this table in front of everybody. (laughs) (laughs) But what I do know is that this is a big deal. It's easy for us just to read this passage as, oh, this is like kind of minorly awkward. Like she shows up and is doing this like, no, it has specific concrete social implications for the setting that they are in. She is risking everything. This is one of many examples in Scripture of someone who is shameful risking even more shame For the sake of pursuing mercy. And yet, what is most shocking to Simon in this passage is not her arrival or her behavior, but he's shocked by Jesus' response to her behavior. He says, Surely if this man was a prophet, he would know the type of woman that was touching him. Jesus then turns and addresses Simon directly. He shares a story of two debtors one who owed 500 denarii and one who owed 50 denarii. He says, if they can't pay their debts and their creditor forgives them, who will love their creditor more? Simon says, the one with the greater debt. Jesus says, you've answered wisely. Do you see this woman? You see what she's doing? I'm telling you, her sins have been forgiven, and so she is responding with great love. Jesus then turns his attention to this woman and says, your sins are forgiven. Those at the table say, who is this that declares the forgiveness of sins? And then Jesus, still talking to the woman, says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Many of us are familiar with this story, but we've heard it taught in different ways. Oftentimes we approach the Bible as if we're supposed to be extracting some universal point or truth from it that we can then pick up out of the story and then apply to every situation that we face in our life. But when we do that, we actually abstractify the work that God is doing. It loses its, its concreteness. What happens is it internalizes it. It can become more about feelings and impressions or logical inclusions than it is about the way that we live and interact with systems and people. So, Jesus is doing something very publicly here, the implications of which would have been flying in the face of reason, flying in the face of what would be polite or expected. It's unbecoming. Of a rabbi to behave this way. We can't internalize this work. We can't tell ourselves that we need to just try really hard to love Jesus enough in our hearts so that if he was here we would wash his feet with our tears and dry it with our hair, for those of us that have hair. (laughs) We also can't just glean from this lesson that we need to not be like Simon. We can't be judgy like that guy, you know? Now, there's some truth in each of these things. We don't want to rule people out and be judgy in this way. We also do want to love Jesus, maybe even enough to wash his feet with our tears. But largely, this misses the point and the work of what this passage is doing. Jesus is turning the tables of power and is showing us what tables are really for, friends. In place of hospitality games and power posturing, he is showing us that everyone has a seat at the table lay down your assumptions, come to the table today as you are, and receive peace. There's a whole logic at work here about the way that power works in social institutions. There's a system at work in these dinners. Two people of power come together. There's a function. Decisions will be made. Important discussions will be had. It's almost a theater in a way, but it has consequences for real life. And there's a way that it's supposed to work. Jesus isn't just saying, this system is fine, but let me just sub in a different truth for you. He is calling into question and confronting the entire system and structure of the the operating system of this society, of the way that we operate here. I think we see this somewhat in our Old Testament passage today in Deuteronomy when we're hearing about the prescription of the year of Jubilee. Every seventh year, erase debts. The, The best part of this passage to me, what stands out to me, is already answering the question that people will have, or people today would certainly have. Don't think, oh no, the seventh year is coming, I can't lend. Because if every seven years you erase the debts, then like in year six and a half, I'm not giving to anybody any money. What? It's not even a loan. What are we, why are we calling this lending? I'm just going to lose this. That text tells us to give liberally and ungrudgingly. Open your hand to the poor and those in need. As I was preparing this week, another passage kept coming to mind for me in the New Testament, the words of Jesus. I kept wondering, as I considered this woman crashing this dinner party, how this would correlate with Jesus' words not to cast our pearls before swine. In this specific story, who, who would be the swine and what would the pearls be? I think, actually, this text in Deuteronomy helps me to see it a little bit more clearly because I think the logic of mammon would tell us that Casting our pearls before swine would be giving things to people that won't be a good investment. It, it actually is forming us into a way to see people as being the investment. Am I going to see a return on this investment if I give to this person or this institution that's trying to help the poor? I've seen this at, uh, at work or at play in my workplace, actually. I, I had a really great conversation with somebody about uh, affordable housing recently. And there was a, actually less than five minutes from here, there was a development that was in the works that was gonna be affordable housing. And a lot of people in the neighborhood were really passionately fighting against this. And so I was having a conversation with somebody who is really great at real estate, super intelligent, and they were talking about this very diligent argument for why it's actually good for your property values to have affordable housing value. I think everything in this argument was actually factual and true. There was a ton of data. But the problem with this is, it's still flawed. Like, the reason that you should want there to be affordable housing is not because it's good for your bottom line. The reason that you should be lending money in the first year, but maybe not in the sixth year, is not because, like, when the year of Jubilee comes, it's going to be bad for business. That is the system. That is the operating system that Jesus is calling into question. This view is morally bankrupt just like the view that showing how well off you are by hosting and how important you are is, is totally bankrupt. It's actually putting obstacles in between you and others and causing you not to be able to connect and relate to other people. It's building barriers. Even though you're hosting, even though you're gathering around a table, it's fundamentally getting what a table is for wrong. In the psalm today, it starts off by saying, Happy are those who are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Heavy was your hand upon me, but then I acknowledged my sin and I didn't hide. You forgave my guilt. You are my hiding place. And then our Colossians passage passage is all about being in Christ, what it means to live in Christ. This imagery from the psalm and confessing our sins, actually getting real about what's going on, what we want, who we are, getting real about our desperation, our need for Christ and for salvation, hides us in him. In Colossians, it says, continue to live your lives in Christ. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have come to fullness in him. You are made full by wrapping your life, by covering your life in Christ's life. The way that he put on flesh and dwelt among us and related to others and ate with sinners and called into question these systems of oppression that continue to hoard power, That is the life that we are called to embody. We're called to wrap our lives up in His. The passage in Colossians goes on to say, When you were dead in sin, He made you alive together with Him, erasing all records that stood against us. In the parable, the debt of these debtors wasn't transferred. We talked about this a bit in our class today. It wasn't transferred or converted. When the debt was paid, then the debtors didn't owe a new debt to the creditor because he did them such a big favor. Now they owed him a life of servitude. But this is actually how a lot of us were taught Christianity. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. So because he paid for my sin, now I am a slave to Christ to go and I have to work for him. He saved me so that I can work for him. There's some minor tweaks here in how we view this that actually causes us to get this whole transaction wrong. If we're being saved just so that we can work for God, we are missing the whole point of existence. What the whole heartbeat of creation is, is to belong to one another, to exist together, to be with one another. Jesus didn't free you from sin so that you could work for Him, He set you free so that you could go in peace, just like the woman in this passage. The books have been wiped clean, the records are gone. They haven't been transferred, and now another person has the records. The records have been wiped clean. There's so many things that I think Jesus is doing in this, these short couple of verses today. I think one of the first things that we can observe is that he's confronting a system of power at work and on display in meals like this. He's calling into question, who has a seat at the table? Who belongs here, and how do you behave here? What is actually taboo? And what does it mean to just be together and bring all of yourself to be together? Another thing that he's doing is he's desexualizing this woman, and he's opening up space for real intimacy and connection. We talked about this again in class as well, but we we live in a culture that we can just say the Billy Graham rule, and probably 90% of the people in the room know what it is. Well, the whole reason that the Billy Graham rule exists when a a man, especially a man in power, shouldn't be alone with another woman other than his wife is because we have so sexualized women specifically and others that they have become objectified as an object of temptation, as your potential downfall. You actually can't have a real relationship with them. You have to stay away from them. They're bad. Don't even look at them. Look at their feet, maybe, if you're talking to them. No, like they're real feet. <laughs> My eyes are up here. Everybody. He's de- Jesus is desexualizing this woman so that there can be a real connection, real relation. And the third thing that I can tell he's definitely doing is he's declaring the forgiveness of sins. And he's freeing this woman to live free for justice. You are set free, the records have been wiped away, and now you are sent out to go in peace. Friends, we see in this passage passage that Jesus has time for the uninvited, for the shamed, for those who fly in the face of every conception we have of what is holy and what is wise. Jesus' whole ministry is about the coming of the kingdom of heaven, announcing its arrival here in the material world. His message to Simon and to this woman is not, hey, try to be better people, guys. He entered into the concreteness of their culture, into the specificity of this meal, and his life, his action, the way he interacted, bore witness to a kingdom that runs on a completely different logic than the logic of this world. His life and teaching reveals and confronts this logic. He is confronting mammon in our midst today. And his message was to declare forgiveness of sins And to commission them to go in peace. To commission this woman to go out. He didn't get into the minutia of every sin that she had committed. He declared her sins were forgiven. And he sent her out in power to go and live a life relating to God. A a life defined by the peace of Christ. Church, Jesus is overturning the tables of power in our midst. And he's showing us what tables are really for. In place of hospitality games and power posturing, he is showing us that everyone has a seat at the table. Lay down your assumptions today about what weaknesses you can't bring, about your gift having to make a place for you or your strength being your way in. Lay down those assumptions and come to the table today where, as you really are and receive peace. By coming to the table, Jesus is showing us what tables are really for. When you come to the table of our Lord today and you kneel around the kneeling rail, you don't receive in accordance with what you give or because of your social status or your job or how fast you are at sword drills. (laughs) Everyone has a seat at the table. There's room for everyone. It's not the erasure of difference, but our differences no longer divide us. So bring who you truly are to the table. As we come to the table today in response, and then we're sent out at the end of service, we're sent out free to experiment as conspirators for justice. I would just ask you, what would you give this week if you didn't have to think about the return on your investment? What need can you bring this week? What feels like too small a need? to ask for prayer for, or to reach out for help with. Where do you need to be held? Where do you need to be carried? Bring all of yourself to the table today as we come forward here in a minute. You're free to bring all of yourself this week as you go out into the world, bringing your needs, trying to meet needs around you. Love has set you free, and now you are free to go out and love. There's only one thing that you're a slave to now, and it's righteousness, which is justice. Cornel West says, justice is what love looks like in public. You are free and called to go out and love. Experiment with it. There's not, we don't have all the answers. They didn't just fall down from the sky. Go out and experiment. Try to meet a need. Bring your need in vulnerability. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.